And then here she comes and was like, why do you love everyone else more than you love yourself? Ooh, and that was like, hold out. yeah, like that was like a Mike Tyson blow, like boom, boom, yeah. I hit the ground. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Pickles and Vodka, the imperfect podcast where imperfect people have imperfect conversations. That is not the original tagline <laughs> but it is an imperfect podcast uh if you don't know that by now then i hate to break it to you but um yeah we're not super tight over here as you can tell um part 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 of the reason for that is that it is monday morning uh i usually do these intros sunday night but this whole entire later part of the week since Thursday, I have been staying at my parents' house 15 minutes away to watch their dog while they're out of town on their anniversary. So since Thursday, I have been away from my apartment, away from my cats, and it was only supposed to be for a day and a half. My sister Caroline, who you remember, she's a flight attendant, brand new flight attendant. Um, she's on my <laughs> She was on my podcast a few weeks ago and was talking about her flight attendant experience. Um, she is working her first few, like, real shifts as a flight attendant, but that means that she has to be on call a lot. Like, I don't really know how it works, but I guess she until she gets seniority, she doesn't really have a lot of choice about her schedule. So she was supposed to only work for two days. She ends up working till possibly Tuesday. It's Monday now. She might be working till tomorrow. So anyway, I was at the house, my parents' house, without a car. Because I don't have a car, you all. I don't know why I said you all instead of y'all. Um, <laughs> I don't have a car. If you've listened to me since the beginning of the podcast, you know, I've had motorcycles in the past. I've had bicycles. I take the bus. I just don't really care for owning a car, although that's probably going to change in the next few weeks. Um, and Caroline's car was at the airport. She drove it there. She dropped it off and she was um, going to fly back in and bring it back. And we were going to have a weekend together to run errands and stuff. But she didn't come back. I had no way of getting to the airport. And so I'm just, you know, bopping around at my parents' house all weekend. <laughs> the reason I'm saying all this, good God, I cannot remember why I started this story. The reason why I'm saying all this is because last night when I got home, I was just so tired and uh, my, my other two sisters who live near me had been coming in once a day to watch my cats and stuff but um, you know when you're away for an ex extended period of time it's dirty and there's weird smells and there's stuff you forgot and all this stuff so I was like you know what I'm just gonna do this in the morning if, if there's anyone waiting for the stroke of midnight for this podcast then I'm sorry you're gonna have to wait a little bit but Speaking of coming back from my trip, uh, I know the cats are mad at me because um, I have this dresser that is big enough for both cats to sit on. Like, it's, it's pretty big. And Little Fang always likes to wait there for me when I get home. Like, I, I wake up super early and I go on a walk before it gets too hot, speaking of the weather. And he will always be there waiting for me when I walk in. And so... I leave a few things up on there, like my sunglasses, a pack of gum, a lint roller, picture frame, and he never touched them until I came home. And then he decides, in full view of me, to knock over the thing he knows that I'll be most pissed off about, which is my vape. <laughs> um, okay, this reminds me of another funny story. I, I promise I'll get into the guests soon, you all. Um, there I go again, you all. Um, yeah, my guest today is absolutely amazing. This interview floored me. I am so excited for y'all to listen. But real quick about the vape. So when I was at my parents' house, uh, I had lost my vape the very first morning that I was there. And I literally tore up their whole house. Not literally, but I was on my hands and knees for four hours, like looking around on the floor, opening cabinets, all this crazy stuff. I could not find it. I thought I was going crazy. And I, I sent my mom a text 
uh, she was on the road at that point. I said, I lost my vape somewhere in your house and I've been going crazy trying to find it. And she sent me um, like a big smiley face and (laughs) and she was like, seeing my lost items prayer. And then I said, found it after four hours of searching. And her response was, I wonder what could have made the difference. Angel emoji, praying hands emoji. (laughs) And I, you know, I said, LOL, there's people dying, but, you know, God really cares about my lost vape. That's his priority. Um, And (laughs) she ha-ha reacted to that text, by the way. Um, And so I I am in this little Facebook group, uh, like a meme group. We We all have them. And I posted our text exchange. You know, her name wasn't on there or anything. It was just kind of funny to me. And this person responded, when God let you lose your vape in the first place to teach you a lesson. <laughs> and it was that picture of um, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, from Django as like the plantation owner, like the meme. He's like laughing, and but his face had been copy pasted over Jesus's face. So... Um, I thought it was really funny. I had posted that to my Instagram, but then (laughs) I realized I had forgotten to blur out the person's name who commented originally, and um, I'm not going to blast strangers on this podcast, so I took it down. But it was really funny. And um, to wrap up this whole shit show of an intro little fang saw me come in from my walk this morning and he immediately just knocked over my vape in full view of me and i thought it was the funniest thing so if there's proof that your cats are smart and they're plotting your mutiny then that's it uh today's episode like i said is an incredible one i interview business mindset coach leticia francis she is in england and her focus is on helping women find their potential and her own story is incredible like when she told she reached out to me on facebook and i'll i'll talk about it on the episode but she reached out to me with this hook for her story and i was like oh my god i'm in like you don't have to tell me anything else um i mean i guess i'll say it because it's in the show notes she was with a guy twice her age from the time she was 14 and he ended up stabbing her with a kitchen knife that's just that's just the first like 20 minutes y'all that's the first 20 minutes, um, aside from this stupid intro. So I'm really excited for y'all to hear that. We don't end up talking a lot about her business at the end because <laughs> by the time she ends up telling the story of her relationship, you know, it, it's a long story. But yeah, so she has an amazing business called Black Rose Coaching. Um, helping black women push past their fears and build a dream business. That's from her website. So it's really inspirational. She has a cool blog and videos of herself coaching people, multiple courses you can take. It's, It's just really good. So go check her out after you listen to this, of course. Um, oh, but yeah, she doesn't really talk about her business because of this story. And I think a lot of times when people come on a podcast, you assume they want to talk about their business and, you know, get the word out, which certainly I want to get her business out there. But I think it's just a testimony to the fact that she literally just wants people to know that <laughs> she has had a crazy life and not been perfect by any stretch. And she talks about it. She's very vulnerable. And I think that just makes me like someone more when they're this vulnerable and when they're that willing to expose their, you know, the flaws in their past, you know that they've undergone tremendous change, and she truly has. Uh, I love that she's helping others now. Again, look in the show notes for links to her Instagram, to her website, all that stuff. With that said, I'll jump right into the interview with Letitia. I hope you all have a wonderful Monday and enjoy. All right, so hello, welcome to Pickles and Vodka. Hello. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being here. I am cannot wait to start talking to you because the what you told me over Messenger, like the first thing you said was like, you dated a man twice your age and then he ended up stabbing you? Yes, ma'am. Like, literally, literally, 
that's the only thing you said in your message. And I was like, okay, I, I need to have her on. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you introduce yourself for the listeners? Just like your name, where you live, what you do, that sort of thing. Sure. So my name is Leticia Francis. I live in England, but I'm originally from Bermuda and I am a business mindset coach that is dedicated to helping women get their mind right so that they can see the success and fulfillment they desire in their lives. Yes. Um, And I looked at your website and there's a quote that I really loved. Uh, It's walk as if every step you take will create an avalanche. Yes. And, That's um, my quote. <laughs> yeah, tell me a little bit about the origins of that, if you don't mind. Sure. So I spent a lot of time when I was younger hating the things about myself that made other people uncomfortable. I've always been told that I'm too loud, I'm too opinionated, I'm too smart for my own good. And I spent a lot of time walking on eggshells because I didn't want to make other people feel uncomfortable. But the minute that I was able to embrace everything about me, I began walking unapologetically because I believe wholeheartedly that we are here to make an impact. We are here on this earth to change the story, change the narratives. And, you know, so that is where that quote came from. Every day we must walk as if we are making an impact. I love that. Now, how long have you been coaching? I've been coaching for 18 months now. Okay. I thought you were going to say 18 years. I was like, damn. (laughs) (laughs) No. Have you always been drawn towards like helping people and talking to people about this sort of thing? I have always been a helper. I have always played a coaching role in almost every relationship that I've been in, friendships, you know, co-working relationships. People have always come to me for advice and for help. So it just seemed like a natural progression for me. Um, I was in commercial insurance for 14 years and I hated it. And I was on a search for fulfillment and coaching was it for me. Yeah, um, I, I feel like I want to skip all over the place because I, on your website, I re- you had a quote, um, you, you wrote about how you were stuck in a corporate role and making you miserable. Uh, you got tired of building someone else's dream, I think is what the word you used. And I can relate yes. a lot to that. And I know a lot of people can. Um, I really want to talk about that, but first I want to get to know you a little bit because, uh, we're virtual strangers. And yes. so, um, you said you were born in Bermuda. Yes. What was your family was, like growing up? My family, I came from a very strong background. Like my mom's family is predominantly women, very strong, highly educated women. So I had a lot of support in that respect growing up, but my parents were separated um, as long as I can remember. They divorced while I was very young. And my mom, I don't know how old I was when my dad remarried, but my mom remarried when I was about seven. And that changed the dynamics of my family. I actually started asking questions about my mom and dad around that time. And I was told by a family member that my birth was the reason for my parents' divorce. (gasps) So I spent years being very resentful um, because of that information. Yeah, that's like instant traumatization, (laughs) you know, like ah, to tell that to like a seven-year-old. How do you even yeah. deal with that? It, it was hard to process. And, you know, as a seven-year-old, you blame yourself because you know yeah. no better. And I think that began, you know, the path that I took for about 20 years because of that information. It changed the way that I viewed myself. It changed the way that I viewed my parents, if I'm honest. Um, mm-hmm. And I felt unloved. Yeah. Uh, What's your relationship with your parents now? Are they still alive? I have a great relationship with my mom. I haven't spoken to my father in years. Okay. So um, 
what I want to talk about mental health because I mean that's mm -hmm. that alone sounds like a lot you were dealing with. I'm just mm -hmm. curious with you, you said it changed you. How did you even deal with it at the time? Well, like I said to you before, I was always labeled as the problem. Um, <laughs> so as you can imagine, a child getting that information, they start seeking attention and any attention is going to be accepted. So I started acting out um, to get attention and which furthered the labels that I was just too much. Um, I spent most of my teens in in and out of therapy, psychiatric care. I've tried to commit suicide. I've been on Prozac. I was on Prozac for probably three years, yeah. um, dealing with what they thought was a problem with my behavior. But of course it went deeper than just the behavior, oh. you know? It's like Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> it's easy to label a teenager, right? She's got yeah. hormonal problems. It's this, it's that. She she thinks she knows she's grown. And a, a lot of times adults don't take ownership for mm -hmm. how the children show up. Um, yeah. So I was labeled and I was the one to fix. Mm. That's, a, that's the thing about children. Like, you just got to treat them like adults. I mean... At least that's what I try to do because they're people too, you know, mm -hmm. they have, they have <laughs> their own views and experiences and feelings and they're like pe people in the making. Mm -hmm. And that's a big responsibility that a lot of people just kind of take lightly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I spent years um, dealing with my mental health. Was I depressed? Absolutely. Was I everything else that I was labeled? Probably not. I was just a teenager mm -hmm. looking for love, which essentially <laughs> landed me in some really crazy situations. Oh my God. We will talk about that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's interesting that you, your reaction to the, the trauma with, you know, with your parents and everything and was to act out and to get attention because I'm the complete opposite. I kind of tend to fade into the background and shut up and just try to be invisible. And also it's interesting for you because people were telling you that you were too loud and too, you know, whatever. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy that you then mm -hmm. have to manage. You know what I mean? To be honest, the reason why it was too much for most people is it was found out that I was highly intelligent. And I was not operating at my best. You know, I was held back. So I was bored. Mm -hmm. So when people are bored, they do other things. You yep. know? So <laughs> it, it just is what it is. So what kind of things did you do when you were bored at that age? Oh, my gosh. I had to be the class clown. If I wasn't a class clown, I was the one that was arguing. I always argued. I, everyone tells me I should have been a lawyer because <laughs> I'm that good of having a debate. Like you cannot yeah. come to me with a hole in your argument because I will dig it out for you. So I always challenged people. I'm a person that I will call myself a nonconformist. I don't do things just because you say that I should do it. So there was never any justification for why I should be doing what someone else expected me to do. So I did my own thing. And as a teenager, it's not independence, it's disobedience. It's, mm -hmm. you know, you are rambunctious, you're a rebel, you know, yeah. not the fact that I needed attention and I needed to be challenged. They spent more time trying, like I said, trying to fix my behavior than actually get into the root of it. Yeah. And I think it's it's strange how when you're a teenager, you know, you're seen as rebellious, not independent, like you said. And then like mm -hmm. it's like when you turn 18, everyone just expects you to suddenly be an adult and like those traits are then valued. But mm -hmm. It's not like that at all. Yeah. You have to be guided. Yeah. And that I can't say that I was completely. I was left to my own devices, really. Did you have like any mentors in your life at the time or like close friends? 
I had close friends, but most of them were looking to me, <laughs> you know, as a guy. Like I said, I've always kind of played a coaching role in my relationship. So a lot of my friends used to come to me for advice because I kind of painted a pretty picture, you know. Yeah. By the time I was 14, I was in a relationship with a man, like a grown man. So people used to come to me for relationship advice, you know. We might yeah. as well just dive into that. Um, okay. Well, first of all, with your friends and offering advice and everything, like it seems like people are drawn to you to fix their problems. <laughs> like that sounds mm-hmm. like a lot of pressure to me. I enjoy it. I think it's just part of who I am. I'm a natural natural. So, I you know, I, I, it's just who I am. I like to see people win. And I think people are drawn to that, that energy. For sure. And I, that's another thing I think when you commented on my post, I, I there's a podcast group that we're both in uh, and mm-hmm. for people who are looking for guests. So I posted that I needed guests and you commented and you're like, if you need a high energy guest, like I'm your girl. I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's me. And it's always been me. Like I describe myself as a self-contained hurricane. Oh I'm God. a lot, <laughs> but it's a good package. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I know that it can take some people a long time to really embrace that part of themselves. You know, it life's a journey and you don't start off really confident in who you are. But um, do you feel like you knew early on that you that was important to you? Yeah, I knew early on um, when I was about 14 or 15, I wanted to be a psychiatrist. And the reason for that is because I always felt unseen and unheard in this clinical environment. And I wanted to be a person who had been through that journey to help others. So it's always been embedded in who I am. Did I always know for certain that I would be able to have an impact on someone's life? No. I think my circumstances probably kept that hidden from me. Um, There was a point in time in my life where I really felt like life was just happening to me and I had no control over that. Those were pretty dark times for me. But once I was able to work through that, I came on the other side of it like, I don't have this journey for nothing. I didn't go through all of this in vain. And it was just using that to be able to turn it around to something positive yes like literally I was just in the car with my sister who's 19 I'm 29 and she's 19 there's 10 years apart Mm -hmm. from us and we were talking about I I went to college in Oklahoma for a couple years and it was a terrible experience and I was just saying well I don't I don't regret it because it's part of my journey like and she already has that mindset like she is so strong and she has a great view that like all of the troubles in life are just making you who you are. Mm-hmm. I'm almost jealous of like younger people these days. <laughs> they seem to have a, a better understanding of their mental health, at least, and mm-hmm. the world in general. People seem to be more more educated. Mm-hmm. I think the level of self-awareness today is definitely different than it was for me in the 90s, you know, um, so yeah self-awareness what's that (laughs) oh my god this my cat is like trying to eat my cord yeah get out um but yeah okay so when you were 14 tell me Mm -hmm. about this relationship that you found yourself in so when i was 14 things at home were really crap um I matured very early. So like I went through puberty at like nine. So by the time I was 14, I thought I was a brick house and a grown woman. And I was getting a lot of attention from men. Like it's crazy to me how much attention that I got from grown men. Probably people would think it's no way that a grown man would be attracted to a 14 year old but by the time I was in that relationship with a 28 year old he was definitely not my first um I had definitely been with older men they showed me attention and because of like I said what was going on in my household that was like good to me oh my gosh someone's actually seeing me you know 
So I met him through a friend who was dating his friend. So not uncommon in Bermuda for a grown man to be in relationships with little girls. That's crazy. Um, and yeah, the relationship was fast and furious and he showed me all the attention. He let me just dump on him. So he knew everything about what was going on in my household. And I can look back at it now and see that I was groomed, um, yeah. <laughs> but I couldn't see it then. I just thought somebody finally loves me for me. I wasn't too much. I was just enough. And that became my escape. Why stay at home if I can go here and get the attention that I should be getting from my parents? So, yeah, yeah. it makes sense in a, in a messed up way, you know? Mm-hmm. My mom found out about him very early. Bermuda's a very small place. So like your neighbors know more about your business than you do. Oh, and <laughs> she did a background check on him and she found out that all of his relationships had ended in restraining orders. Oh my God. So she warned me that this is a dangerous man. And I, I couldn't hear her. <laughs> I was going to say, let me guess. You didn't listen. <laughs> no, because I hadn't seen that. Right. Yeah. He was the perfect person for me in that moment. I hadn't seen any aggression. I didn't recognize the emotional abuse that had already taken place. Like him constantly, constantly reminded me that he is the only person that cares about me. You know, my parents don't even love me enough to see me. So that began the grooming. You know what I mean? Like I felt like I was indebted to him. Well, grooming isn't something I've really talked about on the podcast before, but uh, it's a, big problem and i think it's important to talk about uh so just just for the listeners who don't know what that is do you want to kind of define it real quick yeah he was essentially creating this trophy he manipulated me in a way that modified my behavior my purpose in the relationship was to make him happy He psychologically made me vulnerable and then dependent on him. And it was all used, like he used my words against me, if I'm honest. So Mm. it became, began like, this is what a, a good woman looks like. This is how she acts. This is what she does. And because I felt safe, I began changing, Yeah, you know, let me become what he wants from me which went on for years. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like your world was shrinking. Mm -hmm. Very much so. And because of the age gap, I was aware that it wasn't something like I couldn't be on main street, you know, announcing my relationship. I had to keep it hush hush, which meant that what was going on in my relationship, I also had to keep hush hush. Like most girls my age were in relationships with guys that were maybe one or two years ahead of them. So we all talked about what was going on in that relationship because it wasn't like, oh my God, you're with a man that's almost 30 that can get arrested because he's with you. So they were going through relationship issues that they were openly discussing, but I couldn't discuss what was going on. So there was no gauge for me. You know, yeah. we as girls, we talk and we find out what's normal, what's not normal. There was yeah. no gauge for me because I wasn't able to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't even talk to your mom about it because, you know, she. No. it's crazy because when you're in love, like you just turn a blind eye to all that stuff and mm-hmm. like in your situation uh, oh my god sorry the cat <laughs> um my sister has been looking for an apartment for the last two weeks so i've been watching her two cats and i have mm-hmm. two cats of my own so at the moment that i'm talking to you i have four cats in the room crazy and one of, <laughs> it's insane uh they're leaving today so okay. um oh, what was i even saying not having a gauge oh, yeah like you don't want to hear negative things about the person when you're infatuated with them you know and like when you're mm-hmm. you feel like you're dependent on them mm-hmm. so like mm-hmm. i can imagine being in that situation and just like being really pissed at my mom 
always that was like I just I couldn't stand her back then <laughs> this is him is normal for a teenage girl but yeah our relationship was really strained because he was kind of like my knight in shining armor he was actually saving me from her and the stuff mm-hmm. that was going on in the house so it was almost like you know I have to be loyal to someone just not the person that gave birth to me <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm almost afraid to ask, like, what it took for, like, the veil to fall, so to speak. (laughs) The veil fell before I left. So, as I mentioned, highly, like, highly intelligent. I, like, really excited about education. If I could be a professional student, I absolutely would. And I wanted to go to university. I had married him when I was 19. Um, you married him? A, I did. I oh married him Sorry. when I was 19. <laughs> and so you were there with yeah. him for five years at that point. Yes. And had endured a, abuse. He choked me for the first time when I was 15. And I had lived with abuse for years after that. Um, I married him though because I was in love and I was blind but I remember having a conversation about wanting to go to university and he told me there's no way I got married and I have to accept that that is not part of our lives so for me it wasn't the abuse that kind of like put a wedge in the relationship was actually I could see the evidence of him trying to hold me back and it really annoyed me yeah but I kind of felt stuck in that moment because the abuse was really severe around that time um you know he used to torture me at night um I was hit I was punched I used to ride a moped he used to pull me by my hair off my moped so I had like road rash all over my body he used to barricade us in the house and fight with me it was horrible and at the time I was working at law in law enforcement so I had to hide this I didn't crazy enough work for law enforcement but I didn't trust the police can you can you expound on that a little bit more sure definitely very very small community and because I was working alongside them you see law enforcement from another perspective so you know before law enforcement my thought was that you know these people were really there to serve and protect you but then you work alongside them and you realize that they're humans too and they really don't give a crap most of them about what they're doing so I've heard them gossip about calls that they've been on spreading you know rumors about people mocking people's situations and I did not want that to be me I never wanted anyone there was no confidentiality and I knew that and I didn't want people to know what I was going through at home so so it was a secret this whole time no one tried to talk to you or anything like that there were a few people that knew but I think they were just resigned to the fact that I would make a change when I was ready to. That's the thing. You can't force someone to change until they're ready. And that's one of the harshest realities to accept. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I mean, I I keep talking about my little sisters, but I've been spending a lot of time with them lately. And I really want them to avoid the mistakes that I've made in my life, but they don't want to hear my advice. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. know, like they, they want to do things their way and they should, because that's how you, that's how you learn. But it's hard for me. I mean, when you're on the other side, of course, it's easy to talk about. Mm-hmm. So how long were you in law enforcement then? I was in law enforcement for six years. And so, okay, at this point, you're what? You're 19 and you're married to this guy. I'm married. I'm ready to leave, but I didn't know how. Like, I couldn't just walk away. I couldn't get an apartment <laughs> at 19. I don't even think I would have been able to turn on lights at that age either. Um, really? like electricity or anything like but we just backwards so <laughs> it, it's hard to do things very young without having a co-signer and by this time I didn't really have a relationship with people in my family that were close to me like I was isolated you know you start yeah. isolating yourself because you don't want people to pick up on what's going on with you 
so yeah um I remember one night and by this time I'm in my early 20s so I don't know if I'm 20 21 20 21 22 but in that range yeah I remember one night one of my friends calling me and she was in a relationship that was abusive and she was asking for advice and this particular night, it was really odd that he she called my landline, but I could not find myself in. Like I couldn't find it, which was odd, but I didn't think like twice about it. Yeah. I sit down, I have a conversation with my friend and I pick up a book called Until Today by Yonder Vincent. And it's like a daily devotional. And I randomly opened this book to inspire her And I start reading this passage that talks about people are in your life for a reason, a season and a lifetime. And the reason why our interpersonal relationships don't work is because we're trying to keep someone in our lives that was only meant to be there for a reason or a season. And I remember reading this to her and feeling like a sinner in church. Like, (sighs) oh my God, like (laughs) I needed to hear this today. Oh my God. That was the night where my husband came home very drunk. He had my cell phone. On the cell phone was some text messages from a guy and he was raging mad, like angry. And after years of abuse, you kind of know if it's going to be a long night or not. You just know, right? One of those times. It was just his signs, like the way he was talking to me, how aggressive he was, the look in his eye. Like, I just knew that tonight was going to be a bad night. And I remember seeing him go into the kitchen and pick up a knife. And I ran to the landline because he hadn't given me back my cell phone. And I called my mother and I said, listen, you need to come get me right now. Was that the first time you talked to her in a while? Because you guys weren't close at the time, right? We weren't. We had, our relationship was touch and go. Like we had good moments and then the bad moments would last for like a month or two or three. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so I had periods where I wasn't talking to her. Do I remember if we were actually in a good place then? I don't remember. Um, But I called her. He ripped the landline out of the wall. And he barricaded us in the bedroom. And he told me that the only way you're leaving is in a body bag. What the fuck? So I remember fighting for my life. Like I knew I was in danger. Yeah. I knew that this was going to be worse than anything else that I had ever experienced. And I just hoped that my mom took me seriously. Um. Yeah, we fought. We we fought hard. And I remember it being like an other body experience, if, if that's the only way that I can describe it. It was literally like I was watching us fight from above. Like I was hovering over us. It was almost like I was watching a movie that I wasn't in. And you know that if somebody picks up a knife, they do not wish you well. So in the back of my mind, I knew that I had to fight because the minute I stop fighting, I'm going to be in trouble. And I remember seeing the knife go towards my body, but I never felt any pain. So I was stabbed in my arm and underneath my breast. Oh my God. At the time we were living with somebody. And when all of this commotion started, the person wasn't home, but they came home in the middle of it and managed to break into the bedroom and I, I, I managed to run out into the living room. He followed me into the living room and straddled me on the couch and began to try to stab me. But for whatever reason, he kept hitting the couch. Like he kept missing me. Well, he was drunk, right? Yeah, he was drunk. So yeah. thank God for that, right? Yeah, um, I guess. <laughs> His friend pulled him off of me and I was put outside. It was raining that night. Of course. The house that was in, there was no grass. So it was muddy. And I don't, I can't process how long I was out there, but my mom pulled up 
when he realized that someone was there, he started throwing my stuff out the house into the mud. And one of the things that he used to do as an apology after, you know, a period of abuse, he used to buy me Louis Vuitton bags. And I thought I was like the best thing ever with all of this Louis Vuitton in my early 20s. He, in his rage, he threw the Louis Vuittons out the window as well. So when I saw that, I'm packing the car. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to get these Louis Vuitton bags. Like I can't leave these behind, right? So I'm, I'm putting them in the car and he realized, okay, I just threw those Louis Vuitton bags outside. So he comes outside with the knife still in his hand, with my blood all over his oh shirt. God. And your mom is there watching the whole thing, right? Yes, in the car, screaming her head off. Oh and God. he begins to unpack the car to get what? the Louis Vuitton passes, right? And I was ready to fight him for those bags. Like, that's, that's the mentality. Like, no, my life isn't worth it. Who cares that I'm standing here bleeding? I need these bags. Like, yeah. that's what is important in this moment. Give me my stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it was my mom literally screaming, like, get in the car, get in the car. That made me realize how dangerous that situation was. Like, he literally could have sliced my throat and that would have been the end of it. Wow. So we laughed. Um, and my mom was trying to convince me to go to the hospital. I was like, no, I'm not going to the hospital. I will go to my doctor in the morning. So one person who knew about all of my abuse was my doctor. I used to go to my doctor and get it documented because I remember when I was about 13, there was a case in Bermuda where this man had killed his wife and I don't know if it was a teacher or they brought someone in to talk about domestic violence. And I remember being told that if you tell no one, document the evidence, just in case there's situations where you're not around to tell what happened, there is evidence, you know? So that is something that I did. I used to go to my doctor like the day after and tell him what happened. He would fill out a form of my injuries and he kept it in my file. So going to the hospital for me wasn't an option. I didn't want a paper trail. I, I knew that if I went to the hospital of stab wounds, they would have called the police. And again, I'm working in law enforcement. That's yeah. not what I want. So I went to my mom's house and shortly after we got there, um, she told me that I couldn't stay there. So she's going to have to take me to the police station. Why couldn't you stay there? Well, there was a big falling out years ago where literally I had gotten a restraining order. I was told that if I came back to my mom's house, that I would be removed by the police. Okay. But essentially, very bold with this statement, she didn't let me stay there because her husband didn't want me to be there. Gotcha. I was going to ask how your relationship with your, your father-in-law was. Yeah, non-existent. He didn't want anything to do with me. And we had a very bad history. Um, when I tried to commit suicide, he actually mocked me um, before I took the pills. Like it was a big joke. And my resentment towards my mom really stemmed there where she stood in the kitchen and watched me take a handful of pills and did nothing to stop me. Oh my God, that's horrible. Yeah. So I, I'm curious about the doctor and like, what's, did he not say anything or try to point you toward resources? Oh, absolutely. Okay. But I wasn't in, I wasn't in a position where I could, I could leave. I felt trapped because I was so young. I had never paid a bill. I had never been on my own. What was I going to do and where was I going to go? I didn't really have the support that I needed to press restart for myself. You literally just had yourself. Yes. And I had to figure it out, you know? Yeah. I mean, after being stabbed, I ended up living in a homeless shelter for months until I was able to get myself on my feet and still get up and go work like there's nothing going on. 
So a lot of my survival was learned. So, so you couldn't stay with your mom. You obviously, like, did he try to contact you after that? Like, how yeah, did you finally... he contacted me. He used to call my job. He used to come to my job and sit outside my job trying to figure out what shift I was working. Yeah, I ended up having to get a restraining order against him. And then I divorced him. I never crashed charges. Um, wow. And no, no one in law enforcement helped you out? No, I wasn't helped by law enforcement. They had like a woman's resource center that helped me tremendously with helping me get on my feet, helping me get the restraining order. They connected me with the lawyer that processed my divorce. Uh, so yeah, they were really helpful, but I never involved law enforcement um, after that point, after the restraining order was put into place. Well, I, I'm just, I think it's insane that you were 19 when this happened, correct? I was in my early 20s, so oh, by oh, this time right. I'm like 21, 22. Still, that's yeah. so young. To, and you'd been with this guy since you were 14. And yeah, did he still have a kind of like an emotional hold on you? Like, did you miss him? Yes, I did. When I say this to people, they always think I'm crazy. But for years, I beat myself up for divorcing him. I felt mm -hmm. guilty and I felt like a failure because I didn't make my marriage work. So where do you even go from there? Um, down a very dark road of survival. <laughs> <laughs> so you think you would think like walking away from an abusive relationship okay, things are going to be better. And yeah, they were, there was no abuse that I had to deal with, but I was left dealing with myself. The oh. reason why I was in that relationship is because I needed someone to love me. I didn't know how to love myself. So coming out of that relationship, I felt just as lost as when I went in. This is the first time in my life that I had to figure out who I was. Yeah. My identity before this point was tied to the interpersonal relationships that I had. So I was either someone's child or someone's girlfriend or wife. So I'm now reeling from years of abuse, yeah. trying to figure this out on my own. And I don't know who, know who I am. So as a result, I started drinking heavily to hide the emotions. I didn't want to feel the emotions. I had never lived alone. So now I'm at alone at night with nothing but my thoughts. And I yeah. wanted to numb that. So years of drinking, and I'm not talking about like wine, <laughs> like I said, yeah. I want after this, right? Like I was drinking scotch straight up out of a flask. Like I used to carry a flask with me. I used to be at work drunk, you Dude, know? Same. So I, I'm two years sober now, but like, yeah, I used to drink at work all the time. And it's, it's scary being by yourself. Mm -hmm. Like I always tell people when you do get out of a bad relationship or addiction or whatever, or you expect your problems to go away. But I have found that they actually get worse in the beginning Absolutely. stages because you're forced to look at the things you were ignoring before. And it's not pretty mm -hmm. and it's not easy. No. And if you don't have tools, it is hard. So for nearly 10 years, if I'm honest, no, that's what I've, maybe six years for so for ne nearly six years I it all spent, blows together yeah it kind of does like now I'm aging myself no it wasn't <laughs> 10 years but <laughs> I spent years in toxic relationships just dealing with whatever settling for whatever I had relationships with married man I had relationships with addicts um and still trying to find myself, still looking for that external validation, right? Yeah. You know what did it for me? And I always say this was my rock bottom. I was in a relationship with a person that was using crack cocaine and he stole from his job. I was involved in him moving the stuff from his job on like unaware that I was because he was a chef. So oh he was God. stealing meat and like bringing the meat home. And a couple of times I would go to his job and pick it up, but it didn't, it wasn't something that stood out to me because he used to cater. So, okay. Yes. Sourcing the meat at your job at a low rate. It makes sense. Like it, it wasn't something that was like alarm bells. Right. Anyway, 
because of that, I got arrested on my job. Oh my God. And I remember having to call my mom, like as bad as our relationships ever was, she always came to help, even if she didn't follow through a hundred percent, but she, I called her and I was like, listen, I need you to get me a lawyer because I need to get out of this. Like I can't sit in jail for somebody else's nonsense. Yeah. And instead of her calling the lawyer, she came to the police station. <sighs> and I remember sitting in the room, talking to her behind glass, using a phone. And that broke my heart. Like yeah. I was in law enforcement. I'm not about that breaking law life. Like yeah. I like my freedom. <laughs> and then like for me being arrested, like actually have a handcuffs on and being strip searched. Like Shame. That, that yes. And then here she comes and was like, why do you love everyone else more than you love yourself? Ooh, and that was like called out. Yeah, like that was like a Mike Tyson blow, like boom boom. Yeah. I hit the ground. But it was exactly what I needed to hear. Yeah, sometimes it just takes a, a mom with some tough love, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um but that that is what changed things for me. I realized as hard as it was to admit, the reason why I was in the position that I was in was because of the decisions that I was making in order to be loved. That's quite a story. Like, I am just impressed that you're here now and you're you're helping people too. Um, mm-hmm. I, I want to talk about your coaching, but something I just thought about when we were talking about your mom, uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier before we started recording that you have little ones of your own. Mm-hmm. How how have your early experiences affected the way you mother? I am very present for my children and they're still very young. But the great thing about the dynamics that I have, my husband has a very similar story of abandonment and rejection mm-hmm. from family. So for us both, it is very important that we put our children first. And I know some people say, you know, your marriage should come first, your children come second. No, my marriage can fail tomorrow. And I'm not saying that it will because we have a great relationship, but my marriage can fail tomorrow. And I never, ever want my children to think that they were second to that. Yeah. My children are my world. And I let them know that how important they are to me. Actually, one of the reasons why my business started is because I want to be so hands-on. Like I, my, my children are young, but I have made the decision to homeschool them. So like uh, when I say I'm going to be hands-on fully and all up in the grill, yeah, they're going to have to get used to me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I want them to know how important they are. And I want them to know how much they change my world so that they never have to experience the questions that I hear about love. I want them to know pure love without conditions, without expectations. And, you know, that is how I choose to parent. It's when you say that, it sounds like a given, like all children should be able to that but it's not as your story has clearly shown so you said that they helped you get into your coaching one thing I took away from my mom I watched her in a world for 27 years that she absolutely hated and as a result of that that frustration rolled down you know Mm -hmm. they don't deal with it at work you deal with it at home I saw emptiness in my mom that I always questioned like if you're so miserable why are you still there like why are you there well easier said than done I mean you know you were with that guy you know it's exactly but fast forward 20 years and I was in the exact same position as her in a role that I absolutely hated and if I don't change this narrative, then my children are going to be doing the exact same thing. And that is really what made me decide, you know, money isn't everything. Cause I had an amazing paying job. Money isn't everything. 
being able to spend that time with my children, being able to, you know, homeschool. Like it may seem like not a big deal, but just having that time with my kids was so much more important and I wasn't willing to sacrifice. So I made a decision that, you know, my mom didn't have the courage to make. I want to change that narrative. I don't want my children believing that sacrifice is something that you have to make in order to, to have a good career. You said uh, on your website, you got to a point where uh, if you didn't make a change, your life was destined to be one that depleted you at a soul level. Can you talk about that a little bit? So I was in a really great job. I worked at Lloyd's of London, um, which is the oldest insurance institute in the world. And oh, wow. coming from Bermuda, which is an insurance Mecca, really. It was like a huge deal to be in a position to be working out of this building in itself. It's it's like, it's incredible. But although I was a manager, I wasn't respected. Mm. I was a black foreign woman with a managerial role. I wasn't allowed to make decisions. I had the, the title on paper, but I wasn't really given the freedom to do what it is that I was hired to do. I was always sacking gas. Um, I would walk into meetings and, and my manager give a disclaimer about me because I'm a straight up girl. There's no, I don't believe in beating around the bush to be polite. What you see is what you get from me. Yeah. I am not, I don't bend over to earn my position. Uh, you know, if you can work yeah. out what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> no, totally. It, it's just, it's I not get that impression. <laughs> and it, it intimidated people, but it, it was always thrown back on me. And it got to a point where um, I was in a meeting one day and this old English white man was shouting at me and called me a little girl. And that is not, not who I am. I'm not nobody's little girl. Yeah. I built the team. I built the team by myself. Um. And, and trained them and and managed them. I am no one's little girl. And I got off that call and my manager told me that I was the, the cause of the tensions on the call. And I realized that I'm never going to be respected for who I am. I was hired to be a heavyweight boxer and was expected to be a ring girl when I walked into meetings. And that's, that's selling myself short. Um, yeah, I think in my process of healing, I learned to embrace all of the parts of me that previously I didn't like. So that big personality, that self-contained hurricane, that big mouth, that, that too opinionated girl, that person that is too smart for her own good. I came to realize that I wasn't given these personalities traits just because they aren't there to make my life miserable. It's up to me to learn how to harness them in a way that I can serve and do a better good. So I now look at those, those labels that were given to me as, as what is exactly needed for me to make an impact on this earth. So I'm too loud because I, I am able to speak up for those who don't have a voice. I'm too opinionated because I'm ready to have these hard conversations, you know, and yeah. I'm too much because I'm here to make a difference. Yeah, it's all coming full circle, you know, mm-hmm. that's beautiful. So now you help others with your coaching business. Yes. And you've been doing that for 18 months, you said? Yes. And I love every second of it. If you can see my face, I'm just beaming. Just thinking <laughs> I can about hear it. it in your voice. <laughs> so I have a question about that. Um, mm-hmm. What do you say to someone who feels like they're stuck in a dead end job? They feel like that's the best they're going to get. They feel like they can't make a difference. Like in that situation, it seems impossible to get out. So uh, you got out, but, you know, maybe not everyone can do that right now. Like, so what is a small step someone can take today to improve their mindset in that situation? Anything about the future is just an assumption, right? Right. And we have a choice. 
we can choose the worst case scenario, which most of us tend to default to. If we do this, then we're going to be homeless, right? We can't leave our jobs because there are no other jobs out there. But we need to learn how to change the narratives. If we are going to be creating a future for ourselves that is going to empower us to take action, we cannot choose the worst case scenario. And if we're going to be coming up with an assumption, why not? come up with an assumption that will actually motivate us to do something about it. So I always start by encouraging people to change their narratives, change the narratives. If you believe that there are no jobs out there for you, there will be no jobs for you. If you believe that you cannot do something, guess what? You won't. Start by challenging the narratives that you hold. Really look at them and see how they are impacting you. If you are telling yourself something so negative that stops you from actually taking action, you're going to have to flip that narrative on your head, on its head, in order to change the way that you show up. Because we act from our belief system. Yeah, Our beliefs create our thoughts, our thoughts create our feelings, our feelings create our actions and I mean our emotions and our emotions drive our actions. So the most important thing to start working on is making sure that your belief system is aligned with positive action. It's funny that you say that because uh, I, I was in treatment for uh, an eating disorder earlier this year. And one of the most important things I took away was was that very thing you're talking about, flipping the narrative. So like mm-hmm. I am always imagining the worst case scenarios in my mind. I'm just mm-hmm. like, OK, what if I never recover? What if this is just a waste of time? What if what if what if what if? And then my, my therapist at the time was like, you need to switch that around. Like, what if? I do recover. Like, what if I have what mm-hmm. it takes? And and it does make a difference. It, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. It seems it seems like the simplest thing, but but it really does make a difference. It does make a difference because this is the thing. We are subconsciously wired to stay in our comfort zone, right? Yeah. Our brain's job is to keep us safe. So if we change that question, that what if, to what if I, from what if I can to what if I can, yeah. you know what happens in that moment? Because the brain cannot resist the question, right? If we ask ourselves, what if I can? Our brain magically starts looking for a solution for us. And it won't stop until it has one, which which is why coaching is so powerful. Coaching is just a series of questions that helps you to come to your truth. But the reason why we ask questions is because your brain can't resist an answer. It will find an answer. It will work subconsciously to find that answer. So we need to change the questions that we ask ourselves. We need to change that what if I can't to what if I can, because it gives our brain, our subconscious permission to find a solution for us. And I mean, your example uh, just with yourself is, Mm -hmm. is phenomenal. Uh, It it really does make a difference. And it it sounds like you're helping a lot of people now who are in that situation that you were in for so long. Absolutely. And that is the beauty of it. This, everything that I went through, my mess became a message. My tests became a testimony and my story became inspiration to others. And what that took was me moving from being a victim, acknowledging that my experiences made me a survivor, mm-hmm. but working on myself so that I can become a thriver. And that is most important because a lot of us, we survive these horrific experiences, but then we stay right there in survival mode. And for some reason, we absolutely glorify that stage. You know, I'm a survivor. Yeah. We need to be thrivers because when we are in survival mode, we only have one one of two choices we're either fighting or we're flighting. And that's not where we want to be. We want to be in control. And Mm -hmm. that's what thriving is all about. It's scary to step from that that place of survival to thriving because, mm-hmm. I, I mean, for me at least, like survival has been my identity for so long. You know, if anyone who's gone through trauma in their early years, it's like they're used to survival. That's who they are. And, you know, sure, that's important. I have mm-hmm. a lot of respect for someone who can survive that. But it's scary to get to the next step. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people 
think that that is the end goal just to be a survivor yeah and that's sad like there's so much more to life you know exactly when you're survivor you're not living yeah you're not living you're Absolutely. waiting for the next ball to drop oh yeah that's an exhausting way to live like from yeah. personal experience like that's just no way to live mm-hmm so tell me about where people can find you if they're interested in your coaching, like um, what kind of resources you have for people? I have a ton of resources. So, you know, there are two branches to my business, the business side where I help people really build a business from scratch, but it's also the mindset side. So I have resources for people who are looking to find their purpose. I have journals available for people who want to start working on their self-awareness. And then I also have a really amazing program for people who are looking to start a business. But either way, the best way to contact me is through Instagram. I spend a lot of time on Instagram. Yes. Um, my handle is black rose coaching black is spelled B L A Q U E. That's actually my nickname. Oh, um, <laughs> I can't believe we never mentioned the name this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to quickly say it. The black rose is a symbol of death and it's the death of old habits and narratives that keep us stuck which gives way to rebirth of authenticity and power so yeah blackrosecoaching.com as well um and reach out to me let me know that you've heard me somewhere you want to connect with me and i have a lot of amazing resources helping people overcome fear helping people work through those limited beliefs that keep us stuck how to set goals and um yeah Oh, I just got chills. (laughs) You're amazing. Thank you so much for for this. It was really great. And I know that you're going to touch a lot of people. And your kids are lucky to have you. Oh, thank you. They (laughs) are. They just don't know it yet. (laughs) Oh, well, uh, thank you again. And you're amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to share my story. Of course. Anytime. Right, you have a good night. You too. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Pickles and Vodka. If you could relate to anything we talked about, you can follow the podcast at Pickles and Vodka Podcast on Instagram, on Facebook by typing in Pickles and Vodka Podcast. You can also email me at picklesandvodkapodcast at gmail.com if you have any stories or if you just want to say hi. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you guys have a wonderful week. Stay safe.